In 1992, Kara Wood, age 17, was waitressing at Drin's Colonial Restaurant in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, which is about 15 minutes east of Cleveland. And she used to be known for her vivacious personality, her kindness, uh, the spirit of hospitality with which she welcomed people into the restaurant. Anyways, there was a gentleman named Bill Cruxton who was a widower, had no children, and would come in every day just to be around her, just to hang out because he enjoyed the kindness that she expressed to him amidst his loneliness. Nine months later, when he died, he left his entire estate, about $500,000, to her simply because of her kindness. Jack Benny, the legendary comedian of the golden age of radio, uh, he pronounced in his will that his wife was to receive a fresh rose every day as an expression of his ongoing love for her. Leona Helmsley, the billionaire hotel heiress, uh, she left $12 million to her dog Trouble uh, to make sure that he would be cared for properly uh, after, her, after her death. And finally, there was a gentleman named Wellington Burt who didn't think so kindly about his dogs or his family or friends around him. He sealed his entire estate and said that it could not be distributed until 21 years after the death of his youngest surviving grandchild. So that grandchild died in 1989. 21 years later, in 2010, People who never had even heard of Wellington Burt found out that they were related to him and were splitting a fortune of $110 million. In the West, especially in the United States, I think we have a fascination with what people do in their wills um, because it's largely, from our perspective, a matter of distributing wealth. Uh, what's the wealth of an estate? Uh, but in New Testament times, or biblical times for that matter, that wasn't the case. Because when you pronounced a will in biblical times, you were pronouncing and affirming your relationships as a family. You were connecting your family to the lifelong and life-giving legacy that you perceived yourself to be a part of. Uh, in fact, that when your parents died and your grandparents died, you inherited from them a life-giving legacy. We see that most clearly in the passing of the blessing from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and so on, that it's this passing on of a family legacy. And so, yes, it may include wealth and estate, but most of all, it includes a, re uh, a deeply relational component of what you're passing on to your family. That's why I think in these chapters of the Gospel of John, we are frequently missing what's going on because the context for the passage that we are going to look at today is Jesus saying that he knows his hour has come, that his time to die is upon him, and therefore chapters 13, 14, and 15, uh, they represent Jesus' last will and testament, and particularly in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 16 to 31. We see this being worked out as Jesus makes four promises, and so... Let's pause for a minute and uh, hear the scripture this morning. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. And Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Then I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. 
whom the world cannot accept because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he resides with you and will be in you. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. In a little while the world will not see me any longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. You will know that time that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The person who has my commandments and obeys them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will reveal myself to him. Lord, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, What has happened that you are going to reveal to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and take up residence with him. The person who does not love me does not obey my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. I have spoken these things while staying with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send to you in my name, will teach you everything and will cause you to remember, excuse me, to remember everything that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you'd be glad that I am going to the Father because the Father is greater than I am. I have told you now before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak with you much longer for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I am doing just what the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Get up. Let us go from here. As I said by way of introduction, this represents his last will and testament to his disciples. And what's true for them is true for us today. So it makes no difference whether uh, you've been a Christian your whole life, whether you are a new Christian, whether you're someone who's searching out the Christian life. Uh, what Jesus says here is as true for us as it was for them. And so with that in mind, let's look at the four promises Jesus makes as part of his last will and testament. The first is that Jesus promises that he will send the Holy Spirit. Now, for many of us, the Holy Spirit is, a mis is the mysterious part of God. As Christians, we confess that there's one God, creator of heaven and earth, but how God exists in his person is a complete mystery. So at the center of the Christian faith, is a mystery. We believe in one God who has revealed himself in three persons who are co-eternal, co-equal, they are co-substantial in their very being in that they're God. It's not one God masquerading himself as three people. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in this holy mystery that God in his person is multi-personal. And so, as Christians, we confess that we believe in one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How this works, I haven't a clue. In fact, no one throughout church history has a clue. The apostles didn't have a clue. Uh, this is central to the mystery of who an unknowable God is who chooses to reveal himself personally. So in saying that, the first thing we can observe when Jesus promises in his last will and testament to send the Holy Spirit is he tells us the identity of the Holy Spirit. 
he says that I will send another, and the word that follows in Greek is paraclete, or parakletos. And what that means, it's two words joined together, it's a compound word, it means one called alongside. And in Bible translations, it's been translated advocate, comforter, counselor, teacher. And that word can be all those things. But one commentary writer suggests that the best way for us to understand the identity of this another is that this another is our true friend. Because a true friend counsels us, a true friend uh, comforts us, a true friend assures us, a true friend teaches us, a true friend has our back and is our passionate advocate. So Jesus says that he will send another. Now that word another uh, is also interesting because there's two Greek words for another. Uh, one is the word alon and the other one is the word heteros. Now the word heteros means another that is different. It's an other that's different uh, from the reference point. But this word alon means another who is of the same type as the one who's being referenced. So Jesus is saying, I'm your first true friend. The Holy Spirit is going to be your second true friend. So that's the first thing Jesus says. He says, he tells us the identity of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he assures us of the permanency of the Holy Spirit. Whereas Jesus was here for three years and gone, uh, the Holy Spirit will be with us forever, which means that you cannot earn him, you cannot lose him. He's given as a gift. Now, I know many of our translations say that if you keep my commandments, you love me and I will send. But a better translation is to say that when you keep my commandments, you're expressing your love for me and the word there doesn't mean then, it means and. So Jesus is just, he's expecting his disciples to endeavor to obey him. Uh, and he says, when you obey me, you love me. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. It's this understanding that there's, we connect that as if it's a reward. But in fact, the Holy Spirit can never be earned. Because think about what happens next. They, his apostles will deny him abandon him, reject him, disobey him, all the things that we tie to a reward, uh, they're going to violate. So we have to think about the permanency of the Holy Spirit is given as a gift to us, and it's a gift of grace. Just as we cannot earn God's grace and favor, uh, so it is that we cannot earn the gift of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is receive him. Someone says you can't tell the wind where to go, uh, but you can hoist your sails. Uh, Augustine, in writing on the, this passage in his commentary on John, uh, observed this. How can we love so as to receive him, without whom we cannot love at all? Or how shall we keep the commandments so as to receive him, without whom we have no power to keep the commandments? Or can it be that the love wherewith we love Christ has a prior place within us, so that by thus loving Christ and keeping his commandments, we become worthy of receiving the Holy Spirit? Such a thought is altogether wrong. We cannot earn the Holy Spirit. So Jesus tells us the identity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he assures us of the permanency of the Holy Spirit. And finally, he describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And there's two everythings in this passage. 
everything that Jesus taught, he will remind you of everything. So the Holy Spirit, as my one true friend, is going to teach me as Jesus taught, and he's going to remind me. Now, the word remind is, in, is interesting because it means really that he's going to remind me of those things which are going to be relevant. So out of everything that Jesus taught, the Holy Spirit is going to remind me of the things that I need to know to live a faithful and effective Christian life that, that exhibits God's kingdom presence in our world today. So that means, you know, given the context, I do not expect the Holy Spirit to teach me quantum physics, advanced mathematics, or Fijian sociology. Um, but what I do expect, and what I believe Jesus is promising us, is this existential awakening within us as the Holy Spirit applies everything that Jesus said specifically to areas of my Christian life where my friend needs to teach me. A way to remember it is we learn everything we need to know by being reminded of everything Jesus said. We are promised that we will receive everything we need to know now as the Holy Spirit causes us to remember everything Jesus said then. So Jesus, the first promise in Jesus' last will and testament is that he will send the Holy Spirit. The second one is that he will show the world his love and presence through us. Now, in the New Testament, apparently there's two Judases. There's the bad Judas and the good Judas. In this case, the good Judas says, what about the world? They don't see you like we see you. And Jesus promises that he and the Father will live in us and that the world will see them through us. That, that's an amazing promise, and it's a mystery to me for two reasons. Uh, the first is that there's a geography to God that I don't get, that God is both up there and he's down here. Uh, we are, Paul says, seated with God in heavenly places, and yet we're here on earth. There's a spiritual geography in the scriptures that remains a mystery to me, but the even greater mystery is why would God choose people like us? We're frail, we're fallen, we're broken, at times insensitive and inconsiderate, at other times selfish and preoccupied with our own needs and pleasures. Uh, it's, we gossip, we backbite, uh, we become as hostile uh, as the world around us uh, has become. But nevertheless, there's this promise here, this amazing promise that God says, yes, the world doesn't see me, but they'll see you, which I find immensely challenging, especially in these times in which we live, that my identity that people recognize is a kingdom identity. Uh, last night I was walking our dog Murphy up at the field, and this woman asked me how I was going to vote, and, and I, I answered her honestly, and she says, you know, I have to confess, in talking with you over the months, I have never had a sense of where, you're, where you are. And I said, well, please understand that my vote doesn't represent uh, where I am uh, because as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to be identified with his kingdom and his presence here on earth to demonstrate his love and kindness. And there's no political party on the planet that's ever going to express that or expand his kingdom presence. 
And so I said to her, I want to be known as a follower of Jesus. And so if you want to read me, uh, read me and challenge me uh, to keep that identity intact before you. It's a wonderful promise. I, I don't know why Jesus would use me. I don't know why Jesus would use you. I don't know why Jesus would use our community. And yet, it's a promise. In his last will and testament, he is saying, San Diego, I bequeath to you my people to be my presence in your midst. The third thing Jesus promises um, is, is that the Father will love us. Now, in our culture, many people have a what's been identified as a father wound, a wound that is created and opened up because of a sense of rejection or abandonment by our earthly fathers, maybe abused by our earthly fathers, but there's this unreconciled relationship uh, that drives us in places that are frequently dark or broken. And Jesus promises here that the Father will love us. Growing up Jewish, when I shared with my family that I had become a follower of Jesus Christ, my father, who was the man I respected most in my life, said to me, Mark, what you've done is to become like a Nazi in World War II, and I want nothing to do with you. And so for a number of years, we didn't communicate. We had no relationship. But through that time, God demonstrated to me that he was my father. He cared for me. He surrounded me with a community in Christ that became my new family. And he showed me that he was my father, that I was to love and respect my father. But what I was ultimately looking for from my father, I could never receive, but I could receive from him. Dear ones, in Jesus's last will and testament, he says, I bequeath to you the promise of the father's love. And maybe today, one of the things that you might want to take some time to reflect on is the permanency, the relevancy of that promise for your own life. That wound that you may have can be healed as you receive the Father's love, which is a great introduction to the fourth promise that Jesus gives to his disciples and to us, which is, I will give you peace. <laughs> our world, especially our nation, is so upside down, sideways, topsy-turvy. Uh, if there's anything that describes our nation right now is an absence of peace. There's hostility, polarity in our streets. There's chaos, there's disorder. And never before has our nation, probably since the Civil War, been so deeply, deeply polarized uh, to where families are dividing in a cold civil war uh, between red and blue. In addition, and one of the clearest evidences that we are lacking peace is the unkindness, the divisiveness, uh, the polarization, the judgmentalism, the hostility. And what is most disconcerting about that is it's happening within Christ's community called the church. There's not a denomination or non-denominational church that is not reaping the wind because we represent a house divided. This is so antithetical to what Jesus promised. I've heard people say of other brothers and sisters in Christ, if they're going to vote that way, I want to have nothing to do with them. Where do we get that? There's nothing in the teachings of Christ, in the teachings of Paul, and the epistles on church unity and love 
and, and, and kindness. If we only love those who love us, what does that say about the quality of love that's within us? This is so far removed from the kingdom vision that God has for us, except this. It reveals a deep and utter lack of peace that Jesus has willed to us as part of our inheritance. Think about that. God has willed peace to those who follow Jesus Christ. Now, if someone doesn't have peace, the worst thing you can do is tell them, you have to be peaceful, as if pushing it down their throat, shoving it down their throat is going to accomplish anything. Instead, we find our peace by allowing the gift of the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus said, that our true friend will remind us that out of everything Jesus said then, the Holy Spirit will remind us of what we need to know now to find our peace, which means that our peace is a reasonable peace. It's a rational peace. It comes from thinking and reflecting on Jesus. Um, A friend of mine who went through medical school told me once that he asked his professor, how do you live knowing that out of all these diseases and all these millions of germs and bacteria and millions of viruses, all of which may potentially have your name on them, how do you live? And this professor thought about it and he says, well, I don't think so hard. Well, dear ones, as followers of Jesus Christ, that's just not an option As Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist from the 1700s, observed, he said a Christian's peace is a rational peace because of who we set our minds upon. And so everything that Jesus has promised us here comes to bear on this promise of peace, that our true friend will remind us. Our true friend will remind us that the Father loves us. Our true friend will remind us that that we're meaningful, we're significant, that God has plans and purposes to make his presence known to others through his love and kindness through us, that God promises that the Father will love us and that God promises to give us peace. And so how do we discover that peace? Well, let me suggest two things. One is that we fix our minds on Jesus Christ that we allow our imaginations to be catalyzed by his life, his teaching, uh, his love, uh, his death for us, his resurrection, his ascended majesty, and his returning promises, that, that we allow our, our minds, our hearts, uh, our very imaginations to be catalyzed. Uh, but that's not enough, um, because that's something we do Now we have to put ourselves in a receiving posture. Several months ago, before COVID, uh, Pastor Rose, who oversees our spiritual transformation um, ministries, she led us in a breathing exercise of exhaling and inhaling. Now, I know some of us struggled with that. We're wondering, is this some kind of Buddhist practice or is this a Hindu practice? But actually, it's a Christian practice. Uh, Jesus himself In the first Pentecost, which will be coming up in John's Gospel, it says that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit when he breathed his breath. When he exhaled his breath upon the apostles, they inhaled the Holy Spirit. 
It's right there in the Gospels that Jesus exhales his breath upon his disciples. And so this practice of exhaling and inhaling to me is very much tied in with this, that when we exhale our fears, our anxieties, when we exhale even our sins as an act of contrition and confession, when we exhale our broken relationships, um, our work circumstances, our, our disappointments, when we exhale these things, we imagine Jesus breathing upon us. That, that, and it's not just because we imagine that these things are going to happen. It's based as we think about him his word, his promises, as we allow the Holy Spirit to review uh, in our mind's eye these very things that Jesus leaves to us, that we inhale these promises. And so we exhale our fear, we inhale his peace, we exhale our anxieties, and we inhale the promise of his assurance. Um, I have to say, my wife Carol has referred to this practice many times as being of great assistance to her uh, during this whole COVID pandemic and the, and the um, restrictions on our lives and our relationships, that, that this exercise has been a vehicle in which the Holy Spirit has, has brought her peace and comfort and assurance. But, but what is basic to all this is we do not receive peace by emptying our minds we put ourselves in a position to receive peace by filling our minds and hearts with the person of Jesus Christ. So as we close this morning, the opportunity for us is to exhale our alarm and our anxieties and to inhale our inheritance, uh, to receive the inheritance that Jesus has given us, the inheritance of his Holy Spirit, who will remind us and testify to us the, the inheritance that we will be the people God uses to make his love and kindness and redemptive presence known in our world today. Uh, will we receive the inheritance that the Father promises to love us? Will we receive the inheritance of this uncontestable peace which has been promised to us uh, by Jesus himself? Someone once made the observation that, that you cannot tell the wind where to blow, but you can hoist your sails. Uh, dear ones, faith community, we have the opportunity this morning to hoist our sails and let the sails be filled with the Holy Spirit, the promise of our usefulness to make God known, the promise of the Father's love, and this promise of peace. I hope that maybe sometime today you will take the opportunity to reflect and to welcome your inheritance and enjoy the benefits that Jesus Christ promises you. I thank you for you. I miss you. We look forward to being together with you soon. God bless you.